Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders. I am your host, Simon Brooks. This is a meeting with professional storytellers. I heard of Doug Elliott for a while, and then heard his harmonica at a festival, then briefly met him at said festival. I bought one of his CDs and loved what he did, and decided we should hear his voice here. Doug is a humble man with a deep knowledge of the woods, marshes, swamps, rainforests, and a deep desire to show the human connection to the world about us through storytelling. There's a fair bit of vultures in this conversation, and I get to show off how ignorant I am about nature. Enjoy. Well, Doug, this is I'm very excited to have you here on Conversations with Storytellers. Um, I've heard a lot about you. I have one of your recordings, although I can't find it. I was trying to find it this morning. I couldn't find it this morning. I listened to it not long ago, so it can't be too far away. And I love what you do. Um, and uh, you're, you're, quite, you're quite an accomplished human being. You've got a ton of awards. Um, in Wikipedia, it says that you're, you were born in 1900, and you, so you're 122 years old, and you, you look remarkable for that age. <laughs> yeah, I, I, now and then someone points that out to me. I don't quite know how to, how to correct it. <laughs> <laughs> but you've, you've 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 done nine CDs. You've recorded nine CDs. You've you've done six books, I think. Although your website says five, but I counted six on Wikipedia. And you do basket weaving. You're a snake charmer. You're a whiz on the harmonica. I've heard you do that, and I can vouch for that. And you're a consistent blogger. And you've travelled all over the place, including South America. You've been on PBS. And, and you've been in the Smithsonian amongst other magazines. It's I, I kind of get the impression that you're also a little bit like nature's Mr. Rogers. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, Ranger Doug, we call me. <laughs> oh, is that, okay. Ranger Doug. I like that. I like that. Sufficiently hokey, you know. <laughs> so, do you consider yourself hokey? I don't consider you hokey at all. Well, no, but I think I think a good hokey appellation is sometimes appropriate. You know, oh, on the trail with we can another another bit of wildwood wisdom from Ranger Doug. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. So um, I, I read that your your dad said that you were the boy who knew what every rock was and what was underneath it, or something along my, those lines. Yeah, my dad used to say, "That boy knows what's under every rock between here and town." Of course, I always disagree because I didn't know it was under every rock, but I knew it was under a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> so you really got into nature very, very early then. Yeah, it was it was just just a passion I was born with. Yeah. And thank goodness I'd never had to really give it up. Yeah, right. I think that that's what's so, so sad about a lot of people is that they they weren't able to follow their passions as as much as they might have done. So what was the first creature that you that you came upon that got you or the first plant that, that that grabbed your attention and and said, Look at me. Do you remember that? Oh, I, um I, my brother talks about, about me catching 
catching bumblebees in a jar with the top. I'd catch the bumblebees and white and catch them in a jar. Oh. And, uh, and, uh, See, you, <laughs> like to... you know, for a little kid, that was great. <laughs> what, what's that? You like to live dangerously, apparently. It wasn't too dangerous. Mostly they were in a jar and flew away when I let them go. Oh, that's good. That's good. I used to catch tiger swallowtail butterflies when they would go down into a daylily. They'd get down there and their head was covered and I could go pick them up. Oh, wow. Watch them fly away. I've seen that you've illustrated some of your books. I think you illustrate your CD covers as well. Did you start drawing at a young age, and did you start drawing all the pictures of the the creatures and the flowers and stuff that you found? Yeah, it seemed like, it seemed like an affinity. And and I, when I went to college, I tried to. I figured I'm such a nature kid. I should study biology. They said if you want to study biology, you got to have chemistry and math. And all of a sudden, I realized I better change majors quick. So I became, <laughs> so I became an art major. And of course, art doesn't really inhibit anything, so I, it really, really enforced the discipline. So I was able to illustrate all my books. Oh, I had no idea about that. That's really cool. So, so what kind of artwork? Tell our listeners who haven't ever seen your artwork what what your artwork, where your artwork came from, and and what it um, embodies. It's most mostly mostly been illustrating my books. Okay. And usually it's about nature. Yeah. So usually there's plants and animals. That's really cool. I love that. Now, how did you get into storytelling? Were there storytellers in your family growing up? My dad was a pretty good storyteller. He 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 had more more often jokes, but he had a good way of talking. Yeah. Uh, I sort of have a hybrid family. My mom, my mom was from the north. My dad was from the deep south. They met during uh, the war when he went up to New York to work, and they met there. And so I have kind of a Yankee Yankee influence and a Southern influence too. It's not so, a bad influence to have at all. Like, that's then, uh, kind of cool, really. I think keep me balanced. All those people say you're just a half breed. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's funny. <laughs> so where did you grow up? Did you grow up on, on in in the north, or did you in, in, in the east? Well, they compromised. They grew up in Maryland. Oh, okay, they, they like. They like boats and they like sailing, so so I was raised on an estuary of the Chesapeake Bay. So that was oh. a perfect place for nature kid because it had fish and crabs and boats and woods and swamps and everything a fella could want. You know? Yeah, right. That's amazing. And it, it has like Chesapeake Bay has one of the largest coastlines because of all the ins and the outs and all the little nooks and crannies, right? I I, I lived in one of those, one of those nooks and crannies. Which one, if you don't mind me asking? It's called the Severn River. It's just it's, it's the same river that Annapolis is on. Okay. And they spell that like the number seven? Or do they spell it like the English River Seven with, with an R in it? Like the, the English River Seven. Seth oh, Severn. Really? Yeah. S E V E R. I think it's named for that. Okay. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that. I need to do some more geography, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> No. So what kind of boats did you sail? Well, we had different kinds of sailboats and rowboats that we used uh -huh. for a lot of fishing and crabbing. You know, I think in some ways it was a, a precursor to, to what I do now is I'd be out in the swamps and or along the river 
and trying to catch things. And there was a couple of a couple of kids that were just a little older than me, and they were kind of they were a little bit rougher kids, and they were kind of right from around that area. And then they tell me, oh, you know, when you grab the crab net, you come and swoop from above, and you swoop down and pull it towards you. You don't try to push it against you. And they showed me how to how to hang out in the swamps and catch snapping turtles. And, and oh. I think and I, and I think that, that that whole experience of just just realizing that there are a lot of a lot of a lot of local people have a lot of deep knowledge about the environment they live in. And wow. um, I think I think I've been searching out local people who have a deep connection with nature ever since. And that's probably why I'm in the, in North Carolina. I often say that where I live now is is it was the biodiversity and the cultural integrity. Like where where I'm sitting right now, about uh-huh. forty miles. I'm about forty miles from cotton fields, like you might see in Mississippi. But I'm also about forty miles from spruce fir forests, like you'd see in New England. Oh and, wow! And of course, the people that live back in these the people that live back in these hollers are a little less touched by modern civilization than a lot of areas, so they have a deeper connection with the natural world. So to me, it's been a real, real pleasure and an honor to get to meet some of the old timers and learn how they made a living, living, living in this environment. And you, from what I've read, that you've also made a living from, from nature, right? As as an herbalist well, and and as a naturalist. Certainly, certainly, certainly. I, I certainly forage a lot of food. Right now, I happen to be married to a wonderful gardener woman, and she raises a whole lot of, whole lot of our food. That's so that great. Mm-hmm. So, when you were meeting with these with these old timers, did you did you is that where you first heard like traditional Appalachian storytelling and stuff like that? I guess I guess in some sense that's true, you know. But just most people are telling the stories about their lives. That's kind of that's kind of what I do. I just try to live the most interesting life I can think of, and then tell stories about it. <laughs> but you also tell a lot of folk and fairy tales. You, you wrap it all up together. You're you're very much a blended storyteller. I feel and just 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 a, just a little bit of traditional tales when when they fit in with whatever I'm talking about. It's, okay. uh, I love it. You know, to to me to me what's what's really interesting is the the human connection to this miracle of creation that we're all a part of. The human connection to nature. Any way we can connect. So you yeah. know, this plant can you well can you eat it? Well, if you can't eat it, well, can you use it for medicine? Well, you know, can you take it apart and make baskets out of it? And you looking for looking for points of contact with this miracle of creation. All right. I would, I would think the best way to understand the creator is to study creation. Well, I would I would agree with that definitely. Definitely, my my dog Mo and I we go for obviously we go for a lot of walks. Um, but we have a myriad of, of forests and woods, very, very local, not just to, to the town, but also not too far away from here. So um, we're always getting into the woods and finding all sorts of wonderful things. In fact, this year, in our back garden, uh, for the first time, uh, I came across, oh, what's it called? Jack in the Pulpit. Yeah. They're amazing. I mean, I've heard about them before, but I'd never seen one. And uh, when I was posting online about the uh, the trilliums and the lady slippers, someone said, have you seen any Jack in the pulpit? So I looked them up. And then as I happened to be in the back garden working on, on, on some of the stone wall there, I saw this plant and it was Jack in the pulpit. And it was just so exciting to see such a well, magnificent plant. 
Well, you know, it's, it, it is a magnificent plant and, you know, I, you can get me started on that if you want to. Um, sure, um, go ahead. Back in the public, <laughs> you don't need to post a picture of it, but, you know, there's, there's Jack, that, that little, that little, little, I guess it's a spadix in, in the center. There's Jack in his little covered pulpit and he's, um, he's preaching. He's preaching about the hellfire down below. And it turns out, it turns out, if you ever ever pick up a, a jack in the pulpit root, sometimes they're called Indian turnip. Okay. And, you, you can, and the Indians actually used to make food out of it, but they would process it with a lot of heat. You take a bite of it raw, it'll burn your mouth like crazy. And oh. and so that's the hellfire that Reverend Jack is preaching about. And, it, oh, and you, oh, there's there's and my my buddy Clyde, or my buddy Clyde Hollifield up that lives up the holler. He's pretty creative as a storyteller, and he's an old Appalachian guy. And um, he, he talks about, he always talks about the little people. You know, the Irish talk about the leprechauns. Well, the Native Americans talk about little people, too. And he's always talking about little people, too. He says the little people, they're the ones, they live under the ground. And they, and they, um, they, they, they take, take charge of all the flowers blooming. So everything's blooming. And they're all connected up with the computer network all under the ground, you know, in the microwave. <laughs> The mycorrhizal connection kind of confirms right. that. And yeah. Then, and and what the thing is, you, you almost never, do you ever see any of the little people when you're in the woods with your dog? You know, you um, hardly. I've, I've only seen the little people in Scotland. Oh, well, okay. Well, they're really hard to see, you know, because they, they live underground. But the reason is, but he says, he says, you know, when you walk, walk down the trail, sometimes you step on a rock and it kind of rocks a little bit. That's a uh -huh. way in, that's a way in rock. And they know, they know they know what you weigh. So, so <laughs> then you walk along and you hit a bush, and uh, maybe your shoulder hits that bush. And they realize, okay, moving along, about two miles an hour. All right, hit a bush about shoulder height. Okay, probably a human. So they never have to come up. You know, they have a, and, and all along the trail. And some now and then, sometimes you walk into a to a spider web. See, then they get a face imprint. You know, they know your breast size. You're a woman. <laughs> Oh yeah. no! <laughs> well, you never see them. They never have to come up. And then, and now and then, they want to know what you're talking about. And right along the trail, I set up these little speaker systems, little microphones. And you saw one. You know, a lot of people call them jack in the pulpits, but they have that little <laughs> microphone right in there, and it's a parabolic device, so they can uh -huh. hear anything you're saying. And if you want to play a little goof on, just go yell in one of the jack in the pulpits. You know, <laughs> if you're ever just overwhelmed with the beauty and the nature, you just just you just tell them about it. Tell them how much you appreciate it, and they'll hear you. No, I do tell I do tell the plants and the trees how much I appreciate them when I'm out in the woods. That's for sure. I think I think we need to hear it. You know, like everybody else on the planet, I think every everything everyone needs to hear that they're that they're appreciated right now. That's for sure. That's for sure. Anyhow, that's that's a got a little little tangent there, but no, I like that. That's a that's really creative. I love that idea, and of course, science is catching up with with a lot of the native law, right? right. About every, the interconnectedness with everything, with that, with that network that's underground. Um, Sarah was reading the other day about how two mushrooms that might be five feet apart from each other are not actually two separate mushrooms, but they're the exact same mushroom. When they do DNA samples of them, it's the same mushroom. It's just, you know, it's like our fingers. If our fingers were to poke up out of the ground, they're not separate plants. The largest uh, thing, you know, there's there's been that whole thing about 
about what's the largest living thing, and someone said it's a blue whale. Someone says it's not a blue whale, it's a sequoia tree because it has more roots and all that. Someone says, well, no, it's not a sequoia tree, it's an aspen tree. An aspen tree, an aspen tree, a big one would be about a foot in diameter. How could it be the biggest living thing? Well, because it puts up root sprouts. And so then you're going to end up with a whole area of many acres. It's all the same tree. And someone right. says, no, it's not, not an aspen tree, it's a mushroom. A mushroom, how could it be a mushroom? And just like what you're talking about, that they, they, they found these armillaria mushrooms out on the west coast in this big forest preserve. And they realized that there's, that there's one mushroom, they collected specimens. They, did, they realized the same species. Then they did genetic testing, realized it was the same mushroom. They realized it covered like two or three miles. And yeah. To me, what that said, what one of the, one of the things that says, it says, so, so your neighbors call you up and say, hey, look, the chanterelle mushrooms are up. Go out and see if you can find some in your, in your woods. We could all be out in the woods filling our basket with the same mushroom. <laughs> what a giveaway, this, this miracle creation we're all a part of. Yeah, it's it's, in, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so your your love with plants and everything, and nature, and animals, um, is that what took you to South America, or was that something different? Well, that's always a part of the theme, but you know, just you know, actually, I, I, yeah, I was I was in Mexico, but I also also one time was on a botanical expedition where we were collecting medicinal plants for the university and for for a pharmaceutical company and that was a, that was a great adventure yeah it's interesting. it's i think it's amazing what nature provides us um i was watching my wife and i were watching a um, television program called alone and oh, yeah. both there were two contestants that that got bad stomachs and one of them tried the bark of the the bark of a tree or the the inner lining of the bark of a tree and the other guy tried yarrow um to, to stop it and i'm sure that there were different stomach complaints um but it was interesting that they both had different ideas of what would stop their 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 illness as it were mm. uh, and one of them worked and one of them didn't so i don't know if one of them had a much more serious stomach issue than the other um or if if, if his uh, remedy was better than the other one. I don't it's, know. It's probably why I'm not a clinical herbalist. <laughs> Basically, you're sick, you do something, you get better. Did it work? You <laughs> <laughs> try something else, right? <laughs> Never really know, you know. Right. As long as you get better, that's the main thing. <laughs> so. So the, I, I did read that you collected some of the stories from from indigenous people. Um, how how did that how did that work? Like, what was the process of that? Oh, it just just depends. Um, I've I've talked to I have some very, a few few friends that are Native American, and often I'm asking about about what do you call this plant? What do you call that plant? What do you say about that animal? What what do you know about that animal? And, more, and it's more like in the context of a bigger picture. Okay, and then they tell you the stories about those creatures and about those plants. Well, I might hear, I might hear something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then, so <clears throat> when you when you do a lot of your talks, you 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 obviously talk about nature and talk about the the plant life and the creature life. But how how often do you wind in your stories uh, into that? 
Well, to me, to me, it's let's see. Um, I mean, some people say, when, when did when did you start telling stories? Well, I yeah. realized when I was given I was given plant plant talks, you know, like a slideshow of different kinds of edible medicinal plants. If you don't start right. telling stories after about the tenth slide, you're going to lose them. And realize it's, it's the stories that really hook us. And so, and to me, that's what hooks me. Somebody tell me something about a particular plant or something about a particular animal, or it's the stories that, that really hook you. You have a place in our brain that just hooks narrative. Must, yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, I, I can go on, this plant's good for this, and you can use it for treating your cold, your upset stomach, you know. But you know, one time I was out in the woods, and I saw, about, and you hear how your, your interest picks right up, and all of a sudden it's a personal narrative. Yeah. So what, 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 what kind of stories the folk and fairy tales and the myths and the legends what what are the kind what 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 are the kind of stories that you find there that really grab your attention well to me how do you grab your attention to me it's not not so much the stories themselves i'm trying to tell the stories i'm i'm sort of painting a picture of some some creature or some incident or some encounter that i had mm -hmm. and if, if, if it's a story that fits in i'll try to include that so it's not like a matter of me going up and telling Native American stories, but if I'm talking about a buzzard or a, or a hawk or a frog or something like that, and I have a story that happens to fit with it, fits in with the natural history, and 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 gives another interpretation, I'm always looking for different different perspectives on what we see in front of us. Right. That's you know, really cool. You know, so, like, sorry. Like, say something like a say something like a vulture. You know, you think of this vulture as this kind of ugly bird with a naked head that eats yeah. dead certain things. It's kind of disgusting looking. And then you all of a sudden you find out that, that among certain Native American groups, the vulture is seen as a as a totem animal for for a healer because a vulture reaches into death and disease and comes out un, 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 unharmed. And that's that's a, that's what any healer needs to do. So realize, you know, that <sighs> and another Native American guy told me that a vulture is called a peace eagle. Because it doesn't kill things, it eats things that are already dead. So here's here's a, a bird, a symbol of one of the highest values that humanity has, and a lot of us just think of it as a disgusting old bird with a naked head. So to me, just I'm looking for ways to twist my own perception and and my listeners' perception about about the, the miracle the miracle of creation. I keep saying. Yeah, no, that's I'd never thought of that, and I was I, you know up until this moment, I was in the in the category of like the bird that was hit with the ugly stick, <laughs> the smelly, disgusting, horrible looking creatures that kind of like give me the creep. But with that perspective as, as the healer, that's, I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. Now I'm going to have to look at them in a completely different way. There you go. See, it's, it's working, working on you now. It is. It's working already. In fact, I've just, I've been learning this story from Venezuela, which talks about the, uh, the condor, King Condor, right? right. Which is a, a similar creature, and the the story is um, about how the ghost crab crab crabs eye toss and he throws his eyes into the sea, and Jaguar comes along and sees crab doing this and wants to to try it, and of course his eyes get eaten by a shark and his eyes go out into the water. And he cries and cries and cries, and King Condor up in the sky hears his wails because there's nothing sadder than a cat crying.
crying. I think that's a true statement. Um, and he finds these new eyes for Jaguar, and Jaguar promises that he will always leave food for King Condor. But now, and now you've told me that there's this uh, that Native Americans see the the vulture as a as a healer. Now I see totally make this connection with this story that I tell because King Condor goes out and finds this tree resin that he makes into eyeballs and gives to Jaguar, and Jaguar can see better with this with this with these new eyes. So he's totally a healer in that particular story. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's so cool. That's giving you a whole new perspective on that story. Oh, I have a I have a lot of buzzardology. I have a whole probably 45 minutes of buzzardology you'll hear some probably oh. <laughs> probably probably in, in utah you'll get to hear some what what other birds of what other creatures do you uh, have massive catalogs of stories and, and ologies of <laughs> oh possums and groundhogs and um uh, is that a picture that's a groundhog in in one of the photographs sitting on your shoulder right that, that's true his name was Gudger. Gudger, we, we, we had him, we, he got brought to us as a, as a young orphan. Uh -huh. we, we nurtured him. And he, we just started uh -huh. ready to let him go. And my, my wife says, let me see if I can get a picture of it here. Let's even get him to go on your shoulder. And I'll never get a better promo shot than that one, I'll tell you. No, it's really good. Well, there's that one of the birds sitting on your basket. Right. That's, right. that's pretty cool as well. That's what made me think of you being Mr. Rogers with all these like animals just flocking to you. I just saw you as like Dr. Doolittle, if you will. <laughs> right, right, right. And, that, and that's the case too. We, we often, somebody will bring us a, a, a baby bird that came out of his nest. We'll raise the baby bird. And there's, and there's a teenage stage where, they're, where they're, they're not ready to go off on their own yet, but they're still flying around free. And that's when it's magical where all of a sudden the bird comes and lands on your head or comes to the, to the picnic table and starts taking food off your plate. It's, it's just so much fun. And eventually they go off on their own. You don't see them anymore. But we've had that with lots of different birds. I've, I've got a question for you, actually. I remember when I was a kid, we had, uh, we had these swit, uh, swallows. And one of them hit our window and it was still alive. And we, we looked after it until it was like, you know, not stunned anymore. Before it like flew off, it circled the house, the property, a couple of times, and then took off. Is that have you have you witnessed that when you've raised birds? Do they do? Is that a thing that they do, or am I just imagining that? <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a thing they do, because they're okay. for a while they're they're coming they're coming back to get fed. Sometimes they sit up in the tree and they go they expect they expect like Mama Bird to come up and feed them. Right. <laughs> You got to come down. We ain't feeding you up there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why you don't fly up there and feed them. <laughs> so that's that's maybe maybe that's their way of like they're circling around like yeah they're not going to come and feed me anymore. It's time to go. <laughs> Just know it. <laughs> that's funny. I like that. I like that idea. That's a good one. <laughs> when you when you find your the stories that you're going to share, your personal narrative stories that you're going to share, how do you create those and what's the process that you go through? Okay, <laughs> yeah, not yet. okay so, so um, <clears throat> I would say it starts with an 
incident and encounter a problem or a question. All right, so something something happened. Like I'm out in the woods and all of a sudden I see something. And all of a sudden this critter is doing something. Well, what is it doing? Well, I go back and I research it in the science books. And I talk to my neighbors. You ever seen a bird doing blah, 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 whatever it is? You know, and I get stories from that. Then I might, I might look at traditional traditional Native American literature, look at ethno, ethnobotany, ethnobiology, and um, try to look and see if I can find find some more some more natural history that kind of explains what I saw. But but you know if you if you if you went went along with like Joseph Campbell, and the sort of the idea that there's there's one one story and it's the hero's journey and it has all these different parts, basically. That's the call to adventure, right? That incident encounter problem or a question, and then it's a matter of how do you develop that. Let's see. I'm trying to think of how how much to get into this. So, so okay. Yeah, you want? I I I mean, I'm, I'd love to hear it, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners would love to hear this process. Okay, okay. I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. Okay. Okay. So there I was up in my little cabin up there in Yancey County, North Carolina, and I see my neighbor Lige old mountain man coming up to my cabin and um, I think well, what's he doing for coming to my cabin for and he says Doug I brought you something something you've been a wanting and he flops a dead groundhog on my doormat okay that's that's a call to event that's an incident encounter problem or question or, okay. <laughs> or or I was down in down in Georgia and I was exploring an old homestead, an old, old farmstead. And it was an old barn back in the woods. It used to have been a, been a field around it, but now the woods have grown up around it. I love to look around old places. I went up in this barn and there was a ladder that went up to the attic. So I climbed up in the loft of the barn and all of a sudden I heard, ah, ah. I wanted to bolt right out of there. That's another hook, right? That's an interesting yeah. question. Um, Oh, there I was walking out to out in the driveway. I'm walking down the driveway, going up to, to the mailbox. All of a sudden, what? Moving dog poop? What? <laughs> so, so those those are calls to adventure. Right? You know, you're talking talking about where something something comes along, it reveals ripples on the surface of life that reveal hidden springs as deep as the soul itself. So there's these little things, and, and we have these calls to adventure, and we either, either accept the call or we don't accept the call. So right. in the case where you get a story is when you accept the call. I mean, it could be you go on a street and someone says, hey, buddy, what are you doing? That could be a call to adventure. Now, you can accept that call or you cannot, you know, but either way, your life will never be the same. <laughs> yeah. And so, especially, especially if there's something in the attic going. <laughs> there it is. So, so um. So I thought, Lies, well, I thought for you to bring me a groundhog. I think I wanted a dead groundhog. I realized I'd been asking him about, about the old days. And he said, well, yeah, times are tough around here, Doug. In the old days, yeah, we didn't always have a lot to eat. We didn't have a lot of meat, a lot of times in the summertime especially. We have a few greens and some cornbread. But now and then somebody shoot him a groundhog, buddy. Oh, and everybody gathered around to get some of that meat. And I said, well, boy, I'd like that. I like to have that. I like to try that sometime. I figure I'd get invited to dinner. Well, it looked like dinner had just come to me. <laughs> um, so that, that's that, that's an that's an that's an anecdote, right? Not quite a yeah. story, but it's just it's, it's it's a problem or a question. All right, so so there I was in that attic. I heard that. Ah, I wanted to. 
I just wanted to bolt out of there, you know, but I'm a naturalist. I'm supposed to know what these things are, you know, and it t the, the growling was coming from a place where the, where the barn roof and the, and the, and the, uh, and the, the floor met in that loft and right in that little dark spot. And I got to where I, where I kind of sheltered my eyes from the light so I could see. And you know what it was? It was a baby bird. It had little white fluffy feathers, but it wasn't like any baby bird I'd ever seen. It was as big as a chicken. This was a baby vulture. Oh. As soon as I realized what it was, <laughs> I, I, I backed out of there, let the poor thing alone, you know. And it turned out I did a little research, and I thought I was lucky that I did because if I hadn't, the, that little vulture, as defenseless as it seemed to be, had the ultimate weapon. If I'd gotten too close, it would have puked on me. Oh. Now, <laughs> don't tell me the creator doesn't have a sense of humor, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, Nobody so, wants to be puked on. I don't care who you are. Supposed to be a vulture. I talked to some some biologists who work with, with vultures, and they said, "Yeah, well, you get puked on by a vulture, you know you've been puked on." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's like a skunk then, huh? Because that that stuff apparently burns really badly. I've been told that by someone that's experienced it firsthand. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then, then there I was, moving dog poop. Well, I looked. I, was, I just sat right down there, and I just uh, studied this thing. See what was happening. I looked, and sure enough, there I saw this shiny black beetle. It rolled out a little ball of poop, started rolling it across the ground. This is a dung beetle. <laughs> so I followed that little dung beetle, and sure enough, it dug a hole and buried that little, that little, little ball right in there. I marked it with a stick. Uh, check it out later on. Um, really? Is that they, they mark it with a stick? No, I marked it with a stick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come back and check this out, you know. <laughs> well, I'm definitely showing my ignorance here. <laughs> so so those, those are some anecdotes that begin, begin a series of stories. Uh -huh. uh, the groundhog I would say groundhog. I mean, I, I go into a whole thing about how how lives taught me how to prepare the groundhog and all the different ways to use it, use the way the groundhog hide. And, and it turns out that this animal, we, many of us think it's a garden pest, becomes this 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 animal that we use to make make shoestrings, can use to make banjo heads, to be used for oh, medicine, yeah. the fat used for medicine and meant for food. So here it is: food, clothing, medicine, and music this animal that we think of as a varmint. And in the, in the traditional context, it's transformed. Then there's Groundhog Day. Yeah. Groundhog Day is a cross-quarter day, halfway between the winter solstice and spring of the equinox. And there's, and there's a whole, you know, and, and it goes on and on, groundhogs and dogs fighting, and then, and it goes on for an hour. Um, and the, the bolster story, um, Let's see. Well, you talk, talk, you talk about vultures, how they soar, how they can go fly for hours and not even flap their wings. Yeah. And it turns, it turns out that the one thing they can't do is get off the ground quickly. Right. So, so if you see a, see a vulture and, and a vulture's gorging itself on some dead carcass and out of the bushes comes a coyote or some other predator, that vulture's got to get off the ground. Well, they're not good at getting off the ground fast like a, like a partridge or a robin or just, <laughs> it takes yeah. a while. So, 
So um, if they if they if they can if they can just vomit up their food, it gives, it gives them a little less less weight, and they can get off the ground quicker. Oh, so, okay. So vomiting and vultures becomes a divine plan. And how much how often do you hear about vulture vomit and divinity in the same sentence? <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> well, that's part of the story. And of course, if you're a vulture, you can come back and get it later, right? <laughs> and then that little dung beetle rolling a, rolling a ball of poop across the ground. You realize it's just like a ball of poop to you and me, but to this to this little little insect, it's a a, 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 a sacred sphere of potential. Okay. It's gonna lay its egg in there, and the baby, the baby will hatch, and so, so this is especially special. So, not just that's, a ball. Yeah. That's right. that's incredible. That, yeah, nature is amazing. All it all and in of itself, it's uh, I, you know I'm constantly at marvel, marveling at. And, at, at and, and of course, of course, the dung beetle also. If you if you look into Egyptian lore and culture. Mm -hmm. It's the sacred, the sacred scarab beetle, is what rolls the sacred, the, the solar disk across the sky. Oh right, yes. And so, so here, and and some some people have speculated that the Great Pyramids are actually just stylized camel poop, and that inside this this poop, this big this big structure, that's where the where the king was 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 in his sarcophagus. Ready to be re re reborn, right? Oh my gosh, that's so cool! And so then you think, think, here's a culture that's based on burying poop in the ground as a source of new life. Yeah, anybody who's a gardener knows that, right? Right, absolutely. So it's, it's again just just twisting your head around, and 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 there's, there's lots of lots of stories and humor that comes in with it, as you can see. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's I love that. That's amazing. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, I got a question for you regarding vultures, though, because um, I heard that if a vulture makes a nest somewhere, it's really, really hard to get rid of them. Like it becomes their roost forever. Is that is that a true thing? I I don't know. Oh, I got you. <laughs> It, 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 something as big and big and ungainly as a vulture just can't just make a nest just any old where. Right. And I, I've been in other houses since then and seen other vulture nests in, in other old barns, old abandoned barns. Sometimes in a rock cliff. And you know, probably a tree house, you know, with a flat flat platform up in the right. tree. Perfect place for a vulture. Now I would imagine you can just, you know, sleep out there and, and chase the vulture away every day and eventually it would give up. I was talking to my old mentor Theron. He 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 moved to a new area, and he met this old guy. He said, "Ask him about buzzards." And um, he said, "You have them old buzzards. They don't got a butthole." He says, "They had to puke it up." <laughs> and and that's kind of an old country belief. They, they thought that buzzards didn't have a normal excretory organ. They just ate for a while and puked it all back up. Oh wow! Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I can see why people might think that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Everybody's saying, yeah, them buzzards ain't got, you know, turns out, how do they lay eggs then? <laughs> <laughs>
He said, yeah, I like to see them buzzers bur burping up them eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually heard that, I actually heard that conversation. It's pretty outrageous. <laughs> That's yeah. I, that that would be a conversation I'd like to hear. That would be phenomenal. I love some of those those old conversations. So how did you get into? I'm gonna change the subject just a little bit. How did you get into basket weaving? What else can you do with these plants? Some <laughs> medicine. Uh, how, else, how else? How else can I connect to this miracle of creation? You know. Oh, you can take them and weave them into things, or fold them up and things. An old mountain man one time. He had these bark baskets hanging on his porch. I said, what's the story on these, Paul? He says, these are berry baskets. The berry baskets? He says, yeah. He says, they're out in the woods somewhere, and you come on the awfulest side of huckleberries or blackberries that you ever saw. You'd love to take some home, but what if you ain't got nothing to carry them in, he said with a twinkle in his eye. And he said, you ever tried to carry home a pocket full of fresh blackberries? Only <laughs> do it about once. And he said, well, if you're not making your bark basket, you take the bark off the tree, fold it up, and you can carry them berries home. And I, I was just entranced with that, 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 that way of looking at the world. You, know. you need a basket, and I'll make you one. So to me, it's just a matter of, of seeing, seeing art come from these vines and twigs and saplings. That's amazing. That's so neat. Yeah, I'd never thought of that because you wouldn't. You could, couldn't you? Well, if you were careful not to damage the tree that you were taking the bark from. Well, usually, usually that damages the tree. Well, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's. So how many? So do you do do you teach that? Because I know that you teach. Yeah. You know, you do a lot of teaching with your your herbal work, plant yes. herbal work, and also your naturalist work. So do you also teach the basket weaving? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We we taught two or three classes. We taught probably let's see, we probably taught fifty people how to make make a bark basket this spring. Between my son and I, my son's kind of taking taking the ball and run with it. Oh, he is. Is he also a storyteller? He he had he used to he used to compete in the youth storytelling thing. He's oh, that's cool. He he hasn't really hasn't really worked worked up a repertoire yet, but he's got a lot of stories. <laughs> well, yeah, he's he sure he does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so did did you used to take him with you to um, Jonesboro and other festivals and stuff like that? Oh sure. So he was he was he, he's been really steeped in story as well then. Oh sure. That's sure. really cool. Is your wife a storyteller? She is, but she but she's not a public storyteller. She's the kind of storyteller that when you're having a cup of coffee or cup of tea or something, and she'll yeah, she'll, yeah that's really neat. Port porch storyteller is that what is that right? Back, back porch. Back porch, not the front porch. That's an interesting. Uh, that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, about a back porch musician, you know, playing tunes yeah. on the back. Right, I like that. I like that. And how did you get into playing the harmonica? Well, just just um, easy instrument to carry. I figured maybe if I could whistle a tune, maybe I could play a tune if I had something as easy to carry as a whistle. And I'll tell you, I, I, I hitchhiked across the country one time in my, uh -huh. in my pocket and um, met these guys in California. They were self-taught musicians. And he said, all right, man, we're going to be playing the blues in G. And you get your C harp and you inhale mostly. And when you get a note that works, well. <laughs> now, that, that's good advice for life, not just for harmonica. You get a note that works, well. 
right? Yeah. That's what we're all trying to do. Yeah. That's true. That is a, oh, I'm going to write that down. I think I might use that as your tagline for this show. With a harmonica, they only got 10 holes, and all the musicians got attuned to me. So that fits my level of musicianship. <laughs> well, I'm a drummer, so there you go. I'll say no more. <laughs> so have you played with many bands, or do you just mostly play for your own edification to, um, to augment your story? Uh, I, I, I get in on jam sessions anytime I can. Yeah, and, and lately, lately there's been a, been a few few young guys that have been thinking it's a good idea to back me up musically. So I've actually oh, really? had, actually had a band, and so I've so I've stories and songs, and just interrupt the songs every now and then. And if you get enough people playing behind you, it makes you sound like a real musician. You know, right? That's a true statement. <laughs> That's really cool. How often do you do that? Um, whenever I have a chance, I mean, yeah, I did about did about four four weekend programs this this June. I guess that's, that's not too bad. That's not too shabby. That's one every weekend, pretty much, right? <clears throat> yeah, we had a really good time. I work for I work with my son, and so we he's a naturalist too, and so so we do we do nature walks and stories and stories on the trail. And, uh, and a little evening campfire entertainment, some of these gatherings. So that's really, so does he play a musical instrument? He's a fiddler. Oh, nice. So even when, even when he was a little guy, he actually performed in Jonesboro with, with me a couple of times. Really? Yeah, we did an Arkansas, we used to do an Arkansas traveler routine. Oh, you know, nice. He could be the smart alecky kid. And I wanted I wanted to do a a riff on that the Arkansas traveler. I wanted to do the New Hampshire traveler, and I was I was going to do the uh, the stranger that got lost, and I was going to have some like native New Hampshire do the do the uh, the other part because I thought that'd be kind of fun. That'd be that'd, that'd be great, yeah. <laughs> the dumb tourist I would be. <laughs> <laughs> What lights your eyes up most? What gives you the most satisfaction in what you do? Oh, I guess to me, I'm just, I'm always so honored that people actually show up to listen to me mouth off. <laughs> you know, they even pay money. You know, it's like, it's just awesome. To me, it's just, I just feel so honored. I guess that, that's what gets me, you know, just the feeling the appreciation. And do you have a favorite audience, like age group or anything like that? Or do they all offer something a little bit different that you equally appreciate? I guess my favorite audience are sort of people like me that that you know, they already have a little natural history context. They live close to the land. And <clears throat> I go to I go to some of the, what they call Earth Skills gatherings, yeah. where pe people that are interested in, in looking at other ways to relate to nature, and they they do flint napping and tide tanning, and and I do things on useful plants and basket weaving, and <clears throat> so. And then <clears throat> that's a good place to plug in my storytelling. And you're with Kindred Spirit there as well, right? Like yeah. Minds and all that. Yeah. That's how, that's how I feel when I go to storytelling conferences and, uh, and festivals. You know, we're with our like-minded people. We're with our tribe, right? <laughs> right. Is it, do you have a favorite story from childhood that you remember? I don't, I don't know if I really do have a particular one. Yeah. Um, 
my mom my mom said that my dad when he they we she she'd be doing working with me and my brother all during the day and then and then my dad would come home and she'd tell him about what we did and he'd tell a little story about the little boys who lived on the Severn River and they and he, and he would just kind of tell what 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 he heard from her about what they did maybe get creative a few places I suppose that was pretty engaging I tried that with my own kid too and it yeah. worked out you know that's neat that's neat is that a dog I hear in the background that is in fact I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the dog out here okay all right what kind of dog you got uh, a, little, a little um little terrier type dog yeah supposed, supposed to be a dog supposed to, supposed to eat the voles in the garden there the problem and it doesn't well, it gets a few, but not as many as we'd like. We actually, we were invaded by chipmunks uh, oh. this last week. And so we were reading up, and I saw I cut my hair, I buzzed my hair along the back and the sides, because we read that they don't like human smells. And I sprinkled my hair in all of the holes. So I'll let you know if it works or not. Chipmunks? <laughs> Chipmunk, oh chipmunk, what makes your cheeks so round? I've been gathering them teeth and nothing going to storm them holding the ground, or storm them holding the ground. When you went to Central America, um, what what were some of the most interesting things that you discovered there? Well, let's see. I mean, I've been I've been to Latin America a couple of different times. Mm -hmm. When I was when I was doing that that, that Mexico, that that plant gathering expedition. Uh -huh. <laughs> We arranged. We arranged to get flown back to the biggest virgin area in in, in Mexico, um, right on the Guatemala border, and uh, we we made a camp there and we and we collected plants for a month, and uh, we borrowed a dugout canoe, and uh, and we did things. These things. I, I heard that in a rainforest, all the action, all the life is really in the trees. So I worked out a way to climb up this tree. And um, the tree was like a wall. It was so big. Wow. And, 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 and the first branches started at 100 feet. And, and I somehow managed to get myself up to the top of that tree. And once you got on and 100 feet, the branches all, all came out. And you had to push your way through the bushes to walk out on the branches because there was so much growth up in the tree. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and, and that, that became kind of a project. I would go up there regularly and collect plants and then, then 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 somebody gave me an old dugout canoe made out of a 20-foot dugout log and I wow. went for a couple hundred miles down the river on that and um eventually eventually came out in guatemala and uh, that, that was that was a pretty amazing adventure oh i bet have you have you written about that at all well, that's some some articles about people I ran into there, but I haven't I haven't quite figured figured where the how to pull that narrative together. And I, and I actually I, I told I told a little about I did a fishing CD and I talked about about trying to learn how to fish in in that river and why the fish wouldn't bite worms and they wouldn't bite they wouldn't bite um, crickets or anything else. And then I realized what they were what they were feeding on. Was little figs that dropped off of the trees. They're vegetarian fish. Oh! Once I learned how to use use figs as bait, I could catch fish. <laughs> and then my wife and I went down one time. We went to Costa Rica, 
and um, beautiful place. Yeah, we we ended up on on the Atlantic coast, and um, and we were starting. We we kind of some somehow or another had had like a last minute chance to get to get a ride out to this to this this national park on the beach, and so we didn't end, and didn't end up with much cash. So we were kind of trying to figure out how we were going to get enough to eat, and um, and there was a, there was a little village there, and there's a woman that would cook, but but but, um, but I thought well we, I was hoping we 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 could get ourselves back into the jungle like we did in Mexico, but we really couldn't couldn't really work that out, and uh, so I said well here we are there's always coconut palm trees let's make coconut palm hats, so we started making making coconut palm hats, and and these boats of with Costa Rican tourists would come up come up the river. Oh, qué bonitos sus sombreros! Cuando cuesta? How much? How much are your hats? Well, we, you know, so we started selling hats to the tourists, <laughs> and then they gave us some money to buy food and buy meals at the, lo the, lo the local woman who would cook meals. And, and then, then a coast school volunteer came and said, "You know, these people live out here. They 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 live off of turtle eggs and lumber, and it's just kind of like a boom town." Said, I'd love to get some other activity. They got tourists coming here. They don't always do with the tourists. Can you teach baskets, basketry? So we ended up teaching coconut palm baskets to a whole little group, and left them with the knowledge of how to do that. And that and and since that time, we haven't been back there, but other people have been to that area, and there are people still selling those hats. And it's fun to think that we might have actually introduced that craft to that area. Right, that's amazing. That's really neat. That's so cool that you're able to to do that. That's a nice gift to give back after it finding all the native plants and learning from them. That's a really nice circle that you that you created there. So the books that you've written that, that I've seen are uh, a lot to do with herbology and uh, natural history. Is that is that right? I mean, Barbara, just... my, my first book, it came, it came because I, I hitchhiked down to visit my friends in West Virginia. And uh -huh. I started I started digging up some of these traditional roots, including ginseng, and I just started drawing them, drawing pictures of them, and they, they kind of came to life in kind of a way that even surprised me after having done, done them. And so a friend of mine who had, had a little print shop, he said, let's make roots stationary, like note cards with roots on it, like, right, yeah. Well, I had, at the time I was traveling, I had a little, had a little booth with herbs and teas and old-time remedies, and I could sell a few little packets of these, these you know, little cards. Uh -huh. One guy comes up and says, I know a little publisher might like to, might be interested in this. And next thing you know, I get this letter saying, we understand you're an expert on roots. We've seen your drawings. They're beautiful. Would you like to do a book for us? And so I thought, well, by the time I did a book on roots, I would be an expert. And, um, <laughs> so, so, so I drew some more. So I started drawing, digging up traditional roots and drawing pictures of them. And, and this book came out in 1976 called Roots. And um, came out the same year as Alex Haley's book by the same title. Oh. <laughs> Nobody wanted to make movie rights from my book. That's you know, a shame. The, the plot was kind of thin, you know. So, but basically, I kind of looked for looked for little narratives that I could tell about these various medicinal plants. They are known for their roots, and that was my first book. And then, and then I started doing magazine articles. And realized that after the magazine art comes out people throw them away and it's done so i cut and pasted back in the days when we use use scissors and glue right and um and i pasted a whole bunch of the articles made a little homemade book called woods lore 
And then, ah. then, then, then a New York publisher came, got in touch with me about uh, about this one called called um, Wildwood Wisdom: Encounters with the Natural World, which which kind of deals with, with the natural history and the stories and just, just basically the stuff that I do. Okay. And then another another book we did another one called called Swarm Tree, which is sort of using using bees as a metaphor, and then more of stories and encounters and, and epiphanies with nature. And there's a little there's a little song book with songs and stories from nature. That's basically the, that's that's most of them. Wow. So the songbook are those songs that are traditional songs, or are those songs that that you created? Okay. Almost all traditional. Yeah, and then a few of your own. That's kind of yeah. It's, it's kind of the magic to me is, is, you know, what what these old songs say about the world that we live in. You know? Right. So, have you got any new projects that you're working on right now? Oh, just refining material and just yeah, thinking about. I I go, I go to so many of these gatherings that um. It's a regular thing where I go every year to several uh -huh. these things. So to me, having fresh, different material is important because I don't want to do the same old stories. You know, so so it keeps me keeps me keeps me working on material and looking looking for new ideas. That's good. So have you found any new recent recently? Have you found any new ideas? Well, I've been working with this concept of uh, one, early one morning in the spring. I see this cardinal. Out, 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 and um, and as they're singing, and they have a very, very piercing call. Or so often, this one's going, this one's going. What cheer? What cheer? What cheer? What cheer? And it's sitting there, right, right by the window, on this beautiful blooming redbud tree. And all of a sudden, the, tur the, the, the cardinal turned around and smashed itself right into the window. Went back, sat back down on the branch again, and started singing. And then he went and hit the window again, hit the window again, and again and again. This wasn't the accidental kind of a kind of a, a mistake that, that kills many birds. This bird was braced for impact. <laughs> this bird saw its reflection in the window and thought it was an intruder in its territory, so it started fighting, fighting its own own reflection. Wow! Like, now nature, nature is there as a teacher. What is the what are the lessons that we need to learn from that? Is that that's that, that that's my that's my recent call to adventure. Okay, and have you come up with a an answer to that uh, yet? Well, one thing is know yourself. Yes, I put a blog out about it. Oh, I have to read that. Yeah, because you're quite a blogger. I was looking at your website, and you you blog pretty regularly. Well, you know, like once a month or so. Well, hardly, but. But, well, right. but it looked like it to me. Compared to me, yeah, <laughs> it's all relative, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. Say, Sorry, I'd like to say it's once a month, but it's really more like once every two months. That's not bad, though. That's better than I do. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that your blogs. I haven't read any yet, but I'm going to dip into them. Uh, I'm assuming your blogs are far more interesting than mine. So one of the good things I, I, I know that, that's happening this year is that you're going to Timpanogos again. That's true. In Utah in September. And we're going to be, we're not going to be performing together, but we'll be both, we'll both be there at the same time. 
which I'm really excited about. Um, have you got any, what are your plans for that? Our plans, are, I mean, to do the program. What's that? <laughs> you show up and tell stories. <laughs> yeah, that's my plan. <laughs> My, my son and his wife are going to come with me, and he'll, oh, cool. he'll help me with some tunes. So I think Sam Payne's going to, 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 I play harmonica, Todd plays fiddle, so it's like two lead instruments. We need somebody to hold us down, and so I think I think Sam Payne is going to help, help play on some of the tunes. Okay. I can bang along my drum if you want. <laughs> well, we might, we might, need, might take advantage of that. Uh, yeah, if, if we're free. So you're you're telling with Tim Lowry, I see, and who else are you telling with? And Josh Goforth. You're telling with Josh Goforth. That'll be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he he lives not too far from me. Oh really? So do you, do you get to hang out with him every once in a while and and kick out some tunes? I'm not 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 quite that level yet. I don't know. Um, okay. I have. Actually, he, he he has worked with me on a couple of tunes and a couple of times. Yeah, he's together. amazing. I love it. when I first heard him. I was blown away by his, his storytelling and his 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 musical ability is just out of this world. I love the stuff yeah. that he plays. Yeah, he's, he's yeah yeah totally awesome. I think it's going to be a good festival this year. Some really good people out telling stories. Donna Washington's going to be there. Megan Wells is going to be there. Like Tim Larry, like I said, right. and uh, who else was it? Willie Kaplan's going to be there, Reggie Carpenter, and Lynn Ford. Oh my gosh, Lynn Ford. I'm excited to tell ghost stories with her. She's doing ghost stories with her. Do you tell ghost stories? Hardly at all. I'm, I'm thinking there's, there's got to there's be a way to have a, a vulture ghost story. Like two two vultures standing side by side telling each other ghost stories. I think that would be kind of funny. Hey Doug, I we I, I really appreciate your time with me today. I know that you've got stuff going on, and uh, thanks thanks so much for joining me for conversations with storytellers. Okay, well, I hope it hope it works out. I I do too. I do. Thanks okay. thanks very much indeed, Doug. Look for seeing seeing Utah. Yeah, see you in Utah. Sadly, Doug had to run off, as I really wanted to go deeper into some of the topics we covered. Doug will be performing at the Timpanoga Storytelling Festival, September the 8th, 2022, until Saturday evening, the 10th of September, 2022. So if you want to visit Utah or live nearby, this would be a great time to attend the festival and see Doug. Other storytellers there will be Donald Davis, Donna Washington, Conversations with Storytellers alumni, Josh Goforth, Lynn Ford and Megan Wells, also alums, Nesta Gomez, Randy Evanson, and Reggie Carpenter, who needs to be an alum, Tim Lowry and Willie Catherine. Anyway, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out the other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale myths and legend storyteller, send me an email. You can find me at simon at diamondscree.com Simon Brooks Storyteller on Facebook and my website and on Instagram Simon M. Brooks Diamond Scree, yep that's me the English fellow and storyteller a shout out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast his band is called Blackpool Mecca check them out 
and they have a new album coming out soon. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content of my work. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. There's no E in Brooks. If you can't join my wonderful tribe of patrons, then please help me out by doing something you can do. I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find this episode. It won't take long and it helps not just me, but others to find and enjoy this work. Thanks again for being here. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be. I appreciate it. Until then, be happy, be healthy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. It's just a story.